Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. You know what we do. That's uh, that's just what we do. Talk politics and religion and big stuff with uh, cool people, interesting people, interesting people with interesting backgrounds. We don't always agree, but we try to do it in respectful ways, and we're just having a lot of fun doing it. And as always, subscribe, review, do all that good stuff and recommend us to a friend. We're trying to share what we're doing here. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and I am so grateful to my collaborators and co-producers on this endeavor, Emily Matthews and Jessica Stone. Shout out to both of you. Thank you for all you do and just for being the badass ladies that you are. And I am pretty pumped about who I get to talk to today. Our guest really needs no introduction. So I am just going to shamelessly steal right from the description of his new podcast, White Flag with Joe Walsh. Joe Walsh is a former U.S. congressman, a former presidential candidate, a radio host, and a man whose personal mission is to listen. With White Flag with Joe Walsh, he surrenders the urge to fight and strives to find a path to unite, not divide. But just so you get a sense right off the bat that this is a a man with many dimensions and a great deal of passion. He's also the author of a book with one of my favorite titles ever, Fuck Silence, calling Trump out for the cultish, moronic, authoritarian con man that he is. Joe Walsh! What a thrill to meet you and talk with you. How are you doing? Hey, Corey, my friend, it's awesome to be with you. Before we get started, I want to, everybody and their mother's got a podcast, but I want to commend what you're trying to do with this podcast, because we're so damn tribal in this country, and I love what you do, and I'm trying to do what you do, you know, get people, even people who disagree talking. So good job, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, my brother was giving me some constructive feedback. We were going on a run where we're getting a bunch of people that, you know, we largely agree on a lot of different issues. And, you know, it's it's great to get along with folks that you agree with on, on a lot of stuff. But, you know, I, I as I was learning more about you and doing some research, getting ready for this, I found, listen, there's some subjects or, or, or policy positions that we disagree on. So maybe if we have time, we'll talk about some of that stuff. And that's where it's important to treat each other with dignity and respect. Yeah. And I, I, re- I just really appreciate your evolution and, and, and all that you're doing and, and your candor uh, and your principles. So uh, I would imagine that some of that comes from Susan and Charles Walsh and all those <laughs> brothers and sisters that you grew up with. What was it like growing up in that household? Obnoxious, uh, <laughs> a pain in the ass, a big old Irish Catholic family and nine. Uh, I love my mom and dad. They, they both passed away within the last couple of years. Uh, my mom was very political. I've always loved politics. Look, Corey, I'm on a mission because I really helped to divide this country the last 10 to 12 years. I think we are as divided now as we've been. I, I don't think we've been this divided since just before the Civil War. I think America's in trouble. Uh, I helped to do a lot of that the last last 10 years. And now I'm trying to do something about that divide. 
You know, I've heard you talk about, I'm going off script here, so bear with me, but I've heard yeah. you talk in, in interviews over the last year, two years about certain virtues. And uh, many of us nowadays have, have forgotten some of those virtues or maybe didn't have it in the first place. Uh, virtues like boldness, or as you were talking, you didn't use this word, but I was thinking discernment, you know? Yeah. And it made me think of, it, we've talked a lot about uh, cold civil war and that sort of thing, but I was actually thinking about the time leading up to the Revolutionary War. One would have had to have had boldness and discernment and wisdom in order to understand how to align oneself and what was what's right and what's wrong and how to make sense of what was going on in the world and our relationship with what was our country. We were, we were uh, the colonies of, of the UK. Uh, so I don't know, it, it's not a really well-formed thought, but as I was listening to a couple of your interviews, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, we need folks who are bold, who aren't afraid to put themselves into the thick of it, but also discernment and wisdom to figure out what's right and what's wrong. Uh, Corey, it's a great point. Like during the revolution, when uh, a lot of men and women risked everything and lost everything to give us this country, we're at a point now where we do need people to risk losing everything. I really believe to try to save America. Now, I, I'm a I'm no great shakes. I stood up against Trump about four some years ago, and immediately I lost everything. Uh, my former political party right now is made up of way too many people who are just afraid to do that. Uh, so I, I think we're going to be in this thing for a while. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, as I was thinking about what you've been through over the last four years or so, plus or minus, uh, there was a, a, ver a Bible verse that came to mind. I hope you don't mind if I dive in here. Not at all. For what does it benefit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You know, what I was thinking of is <laughs> when you were in the thick of it, pre-awakening, pre uh, if you want to call yeah. it that, how close were you to losing your soul? Uh, every single day. <laughs> yes. yes. I was on the precipice every single day. Um I, 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 I could have gotten elected again and sent back to Congress. I could have been the next Rush Limbaugh. I could be on 400 stations around the country. I could have my own show on Fox News. This was all available to me and put in front of me every day. If you only do this, if you say this, uh, and I, I couldn't do it. And so eventually, but that temptation was there every day. Look, I give, I give a lot of people in my former worlds of conservative media and Republican politics a hard time because 99% of them did in fact sell their soul. But I get it. It's, yeah. it's really hard not to right now because you end up like me losing everything. But there are folks like you, like Charlie Sykes, like Bill Kristol, who they had it all. I, I just talked to a terrific, terrific young man who was part of the foundation of, of the Lincoln Project and then yeah. ultimately left the Lincoln Project. And he had to make decisions. He started politicology. Uh, I'm speaking of Ron Steslow. Great guy. Yeah. And, and he had to make that decision several times where he was, you know, one of the fortunes 40 under 40 and all these things. And he could have had the whole world. 
But on principle, he had to say, you know what? I'm losing my soul. I have to be who I am. I have to um, follow what I know is right, despite what it costs me. So a couple questions there. One Here's is- let, let, me, let me jump in, Corey, and just, and just quickly say one thing. And Ron's a great guy. Crystal's a great guy. Charlie Sykes is a great guy. I know all these guys, all these guys in the never Trumper world. Here's what makes me a weird, unusual cat. I'm the only one I know who literally came from the Trump gang. I mean, I came from Trump world. I voted for Trump. The populist base of the Republican Party, that was me. I came from that world. And I, I often feel like a reform gangbanger because I got out of that world. Sykes, Crystal, Ron Steslow, they, they were never part of that world. So I literally feel like I escaped the cult. And I did. That makes my journey kind of odd, weird. Then again, there are some uh, heroes that had that similar kind of story. You know, Paul was Saul before he was Paul. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, he, he was holding the coats of the guys who were throwing stones, you know, so there, yeah. there are some. I was also thinking, of, I, I don't know why, but uh, what's his name? Tony Stark came to mind as well. Yeah. He was like making all the bombs before he uh, yeah. figured out how to. <laughs> but yes. uh, so so do you think there is redemption for others that are still in the thick of it? The Mark Levins, the uh, the Sean Hannity's, the, the Ben Shapiro's. Do you think there's redemption there? Can they find their way out of the, the morass? I don't think they will. Can they still? Yes. But I don't think they will. What's most disappointing is in that, in that morass, in that cult, uh, the gang that I came from, most people in that cult, in the media and Republican elected officials, they think the same way about Trump and Trumpism that I do. They just keep their mouths shut or they avoid talking about it. Ben Shapiro's in that class. Shapiro can't stand Trump, but he, he's making money trying to avoid having to talk about Trump. But then you've got nuts and true believers like Hannity. Yeah. I mean, Hannity's a jerk. He believes it. Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, they believe this stuff. Yeah. Um, but most, most of them, Corey, in that world, they don't believe it. They've just decided to keep their mouths quiet. Yeah, well, we'll get into uh, quite a bit of that in a second. But I, I also wanted to take a little bit of time to talk a little bit more about, about your story. You grew up in a town north of about an hour, hour and a half north of Chicago, depending on traffic, of course. Yeah. I was curious, you mentioned your mom, but were a lot of folks from North Barrington where you grew up, did they tend to be conservative, libertarian leaning or were there other influences that shaped your your political beliefs? No, yeah, it, it was it was white bread, middle 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 class, middle upper class, country club kind of Republican. But I come from a family that's not political at all. I come from a family of nine kids. I'm the only one in the nine who really got political. Oh, uh, I come from a world, Corey, where uh, even uh, I'm Catholic. You don't wear your religion on your sleeve. You're, you're quiet about your religion. I come from the same world politically. Where I come from, you don't really talk about your politics. So what I've done the last 10 to 12 years, being very public, has kind of, it's been difficult for my family and a lot of people to accept. Oh, wow. I, I, I'm only imagining folks coming up to them and having them account for stuff that you've said over the years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So, so I, I also I want to talk a little bit about your your work as a as a social worker. But I saw something that really caught my eye. You went to uh, to Strasbourg. You went to you're a method acting acting guy. <laughs> yes, I uh, I was just too damn lazy, Corey. I, I went out to L.A. and then I went out to New York. I studied at the Strasbourg Institute. I've always been enamored with the acting profession. I just didn't have the ethic to stay with it. Oh man. Well, I'm a I'm a Meisner and then uh, Stella Adler guy. So uh, oh yeah, we were we there were arch go. rivals back in the day. They they Stella and Strasbourg didn't like each other, but that might be for a whole other podcast. That's a fascinating conversation. Oh man, uh, yeah, I became quite a student of that whole history from the group theater on forward. But uh, so for you, you said you refer to yourself as I don't know how lazy you could be if you're getting a master's in public policy from the University of Chicago. So that led you into your social work. I'd love if you could share with our listeners, you were involved with some really fascinating projects in, in you know, hard parts of, of Chicago. Can you share with our listeners what you did and some of the programs you were involved in? I've grown up with the desire to serve. And you combine that with my general libertarian philosophy that it's not government's job to take care of my neighbor. It's my job. That's always been my philosophy. So I've done a lot of teaching. I've done a lot of social work. And I'm always asked, Joe, how the hell can you be a conservative and a social worker? Because it fits with my philosophy. I want to help those less fortunate than me. I don't want the government to. I spent a lot of time on Chicago's South Side helping uh, inner city white, black, and brown kids get an education and find work. This notion of urban schools and how do we make our urban schools better uh, has always been a question I've been obsessed with. You know, now that you say that, it makes me wonder, you were probably doing social work in in a same part of town where a young Barack Obama was doing community organizing. Did you ever come across each other pre-politics? Did not. Um, But yeah, the exact same neighborhood. Wow. Quite literally, the south side of Chicago, where he did community organizing. But we we missed each other by a few years. Okay, yeah. It makes you wonder, uh, folks of goodwill who are doing good work among the neighborhoods. uh, And then you could derive very different uh, political positions on on individual uh, policies. But um, so it sounds like you were increasingly involved in politics through the 90s, but not initially as a candidate. I was curious why you decided to get involved at all. And, and when did you first have that notion to run for office? I hit, yeah, I got married right away and I had kids right away. And so raising the kids became my, uh, my mission. Look, Corey, I, I ran for Congress in 2010. I became kind of the face of the Tea Party movement. I ran for Congress for the same reason that a lot of Republicans back then ran. We were pissed off about all of the debt that we were placing on the backs of our kids and our grandkids, both parties were responsible for that debt. Uh, kind of crazy. It was like nine, 10 trillion at the time. Now look at us. But I, I got angry. Uh, so I ran for Congress in a district held by a Democrat. Uh, I barely beat her. And then once I got to Washington, I was off to the races. I have lots of questions now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so you're, I would imagine that your run in 96 and then the one state legislature yeah. was at 98. Were your reasons different than when you eventually ran for into 2010? 
It's such, Corey, that's such a, an excellent question because most people who run for office, I think, run for the wrong reasons or they don't have a reason. I've always been drawn to people who run for office because they want to do something, not be something. Um, I ran for Congress in 1996, I think, for the first time, and I had no shot to win. I lived in an overwhelmingly Democratic district. But the congressman there was 87 years old. He was elected, first elected in 1948. He had never been back to the district. That just pissed me off. I thought it was so wrong. So I ran to, to be kind of like a citizen legislator. I read about a couple of stunts that you pulled uh, during that. Uh, that you, you, I loved you, it. you paid somebody like a thousand bucks. The first person who spots, uh, you know, what's his name, <laughs> the 87 year old in this district, because he, re- he was never in the district and it took never, a while. Never, never. He never came back home. <laughs> so we gave his doorman a thousand dollars because his doorman was the first person to see him back home in the district. That's funny. Um, I, I didn't have a chance to run to win, but I, I I I felt like even back then there were a lot of people who were really frustrated with our political system mm. twenty years ago. And my God, that that's only magnified now. Yeah, yeah. Now you also mentioned so fast forward to twenty ten when you won. You won, if I have the numbers right, by less than one tenth of one percent. Uh, so coincidence, but you won. I mean. Uh, you won in in a pretty heavily the the, the prior. If you look at the uh, the track record of that district, it was pretty heavily. It was D plus a lot. Uh, so the fact that a Republican won, it was partly the Tea Party wave, the that first midterm of Obama's ter- of Obama's presidency, first term. Um, but I, I bring it up because I live in California, twenty five. A guy named Mike Garcia won this district by three hundred and thirty three yeah. votes. Um, <laughs> and uh, the funny thing is, is that I. When he was running, I looked at a lot of his positions and I said, I'm in alignment with a lot of these positions. But then when the election of 2020 happened and then January 6th happened, I I think everybody had to reorient themselves. The other thing, too, though, is that Mike won by less than one tenth of one percent, about 350,000 people voted in this district. But now, instead of instead of aligning with Kinzinger and Meyer and Cheney, and, and finding opportunities to take a stand, even a Nancy Mace, who occasionally will take a principled stance, he has only appeared on Newsmax. He has he, he, he doesn't appear in anywhere that he might get um, a tough question. He's taken votes to overturn Arizona and Pennsylvania's uh, electoral college votes. He's getting an F from the democracy report guard from the, uh, you know, Crystal yeah. uh, Bill Crystal's group. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and this is as purple of a district as it can. So you were in a district like that, uh, that you won by the slimmest of margins. If you were in a district like that now and won an election now, what are some of those votes that maybe you would have taken some heat to stand on principle and take a tough vote? Well, I, I think about it all the time, Corey. If, if, if I were still a Republican in Congress, I wouldn't be doing anything differently than I'm doing outside of Congress. Mm. I would have turned on Trump in a nanosecond. I would have called out Trump. I would have been the only Republican to vote to impeach Trump the first time. Yeah. Um, and so because I would have done all of that, there's no way on God's green earth I ever could have gotten elected in a Republican primary 
last time around or this next time around. Adam Kinzinger and I are good friends. We got elected together from the same state. He stepped down because he knows there's no room right now in this Republican Party for him. He knows that. Uh, Liz Cheney deep down knows that. But I give Adam a lot of credit because he's doing what he believes is right. Well, I look at how your district was redrawn for the 2012 and also how his <laughs> district is being redrawn yeah. for 2022. And there's a similar circumstance. They, You didn't have a lot of options in 2012 that gave no. you any sort of chance, similar to to uh, Congressman Kinzinger. And, and, and yeah, and what I did, Corey, was when I went to Washington in 2010, remember, uh, I was a Republican, but I declared war on the Republican Party every bit as much as the Democrats so I, I raised holy hell against both parties. So when it came to redrawing the districts two years later, uh, they turned my district into a hardcore Democratic district. They drew it, literally drew it for Tammy Duckworth. So even though I was a congressman, I was a severe underdog. Yeah, yeah. At what point now, the Tea Party movement initially started as a grassroots movement. But within a short, relatively short amount of time, it went the way of what they called uh, AstroTurf or something like that. Did you see some of that happening uh, right under your feet or or did you kind of get caught up in a wave during that time? Uh, I, I saw it happening. I uh, look, I got elected by the wave. It, it was it was a real grassroots movement. I still, Corey, proudly cling to my Tea Party roots because for me, again, it was all about the debt. Once it became clear after about a year in Congress that Republicans didn't give a damn about the debt, then a lot of those folks back home, those grassroots folks, they became pretty disenchanted and turned off. And then, you know, another four or so years later, Trump, the demagogue, came along and he tapped into that Tea Party movement but he tapped into some of the uglier aspects of it. You know, yeah. So actually one of the things that I've heard you talk about uh, is how, I don't know if you would say it exactly this way, but when you were in Congress, you were pretty outspoken. You, you had a certain style of engagement <laughs> that- let's, You're being very diplomatic. Well, you know, it. but I think it was, ref, you were more, First of all, I, I always go back to that household, the Walsh household that you grew up in. You had to be pretty, you know, passionate and outspoken just to get a word in edgewise with all those brothers yeah. and sisters. So that might be part of it. But but yeah, you can see that line. And it, it didn't start with you, uh, but you were part of it. There was Rush Limbaugh that led to Fox News that led yeah. to open the door for Newt Gingrich to be how he was. And later Sarah Palin, how she was to Congressman Joe Walsh and then, you know, Donald fucking Trump and yes, you know, yes, even, yeah. even, even the inglorious MTG. So here's, here's a question though. Is there a way out of, is there some version of uh, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan for the 21st century, you know, a, a, and if so, how do we get there? Not with this Republican party. Uh, he, here's what we always have to remember. When we talk about Republican voters the base of the party, we're primarily talking about older white men and older white women. And the problem, Corey, is for years and years, the base of the party, they were really scared and concerned and worried about the direction the country was going in. The country was changing way too fast for them. 
The party establishment ignored them. Along came Tea Party people like me, and we riled these people up. Once Trump got there and he said, I'm going to build a wall and I'm keeping brown and black people out. Man, once he said that, Corey, he he basically radicalized these folks. So I, I engage with these people every day. Uh, remember, this is what makes me different than Nichols and Crystal and Sykes and all of them. They're my family, these Trump supporters. So I still speak to hundreds of them every day. Most of them, Corey, cannot be reached. Mm. They're unreachable. Some are, but most of them will never be reached. Yeah, I I think of Madrid uh, last year. Mike Madrid was talking about that small percentage of people, you know, whether it's 2% or 4%, it's a small percentage of people. But listen, that's what won Pennsylvania. That's what won Michigan. Yes. That's what won Wisconsin. So it does. And and also, I listen. I I've as an apologist, a the, the, theological apologist, I know that oftentimes when you're talking to people about big important things, you're not going to see a 180 in one conversation. Right. If you stay in that conversation like you are, you can see degrees. But here's here's what I love about about one of the many things I love about your new program, uh, White Flag is that you also then have to be opening to listening and, and, and developing some more nuance in your own views as you're staying in relationship and conversation with these people who disagree with you. But I, I have a question about that because we don't often try to put ourselves in the shoes or understand better people that we, we passionately disagree with. Uh, you know, before I moved out to Jersey, my family uh, was in this blue collar neighborhood in Staten Island and we love our next door neighbors. Yeah. But I know a bunch of the, those next the Italian family next door, a bunch of them were big Trump supporters in 2016. And uh, we've talked a lot about whether it's the hillbilly elegy, you know, explanations. We've talked about 2016. I'd love for you to help our, us understand the 2020 and the continued support after everything that that's happened. You know, for, for whether it's pre 2016 for my I, I like my heroes who didn't get captured to grabbing her by the private parts. But yeah. then post and this is where you began to uh, I don't know if it was Charlottesville or Helsinki. Um, but then after all, the Lafayette Square and then January 6th, that's what's a lot harder to understand is how folks are still standing by this. Trump got elected in 2016, Corey, because our politics sucks. Our political system was broken. I voted for Trump in 2016, not because I liked him. I figured he was a goof, but I understood that our political system needed disruption. It's something I've been talking about for years. Now, Trump's a horrible human being, so we didn't need that kind of disruption. But he won because he was a disruptor. By 2020, Corey, almost all of his support Well, again, I know other people have said this. I experienced it and I experience it still every day. It is a cult. Mm. I'm I'm telling you, the base of the party is a cult. So they cling to him no matter what. I, I campaigned against him in the presidential primary. I remember being in Iowa campaigning against Trump. I asked 40 Trump supporters in a row, has Donald Trump ever told a lie? Ever told a lie? 40 of them told me no. Do they all believe it? I don't know, but they are, they are members right now of a cult 
and that support will not be broken. I will only add one other piece. The Democrats have issues. You know, most Americans, Corey, don't want to be in the Trump cult, but most Americans don't want, do not consider themselves to be crazy leftist either. And, and if the Democrats don't focus on where most Americans are, Trump's got a decent chance of winning again in 24. Yeah. I mean, I was very encouraged by the way that the Democratic primary went in 2020. Uh, I was really rooting for a neighbor of yours, uh, Mayor Pete, but uh, yeah, <laughs> out, of, out of that primary. But, you know, Biden, I thought, was was a good solution. I I, I probably would have ended up voting for, uh, you know, some of the folks who are further left. I probably would have. But yeah. it, it, it would have been a thought. I, I'm not really a thought because of how passionately I felt and how urgent I felt it was to replace Trump. I, I just thought that that would be ruinous uh, for our country. But I, I did want to ask you about um, I, I want to skip back a little bit. Yeah. And a lot of folks ask you about the the musket tweets and the, you know, black my lives. My favorite tweet, Corey. That's my favorite tweet. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to, I'd rather talk about how you've evolved on numerous issues uh, as, as well as in your personal style, but I will give you a chance if you, to beat yourself up a little bit. Uh, so are there certain things you've said in the past that in particular oh, exchanges? God, yes. God, yes. Oh, Corey, I'll tell you what, uh, it's an amazing experience running for president because you literally walk around naked every day. <laughs> And every inch of you is looked at. I spent most of that presidential campaign apologizing for hundreds of tweets and hundreds of things I've said. I have been very outspoken, probably 500,000 tweets in the last 10 years. You and I could find two or 3,000 tweets. <laughs> yeah, where you, Corey, you'd say, what the hell were you thinking, Walsh? <laughs> because I got so wrapped up in the fight I was in, Oftentimes I went over my skis and oftentimes I engaged in ugly personal politics and said things I regret. I think about Obama. Uh, I went there and said things about Obama. I, like people today, Corey, if they disagree with Ilhan Omar or AOC, a lot of these stupid Republicans today will say Ilhan Omar hates America. I remember saying that about Obama seven or eight years ago, instead of saying, no, Obama doesn't hate America. He and I just differ on some things. So, so I've, I, I said things like that, that I would never say now uh, that I regret just personalizing, just ugly personal politics, which, by the way, helped give us Trump. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, like I said, obviously you have evolved your, you know, on issues, your position on climate change, your Black Lives Matter, your view of Donald Trump. But I was curious, what was that, the personal epiphany like? Like, how did you, because it's so easy to get caught up in the battle. Like, to your point, you're saying a lot of people who are still following Donald Trump after all this are, they're, they're in a cult. You just get caught up in it and you throw some bombs and, and if you think about it, just for a, even for a second, you're thinking, well, those people are so bad. We got to do this. This is what we have to do. How did you get that space and, and perspective to say, whoa, 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 hold on. I have to now work towards th this is the problem. The way that we engage is the problem. And now I have to work towards fixing that problem. How did that happen for you? Um, 
and by the way, uh, Jim Jordan and I used to be best friends. What you just said right there, Corey, that, that's that's how Jim Jordan and a lot of these Republicans think. I look at Devin Nunez. Devin Nunez yeah. wasn't a guy that was, you know, licking licking Trump's boots and sneaking out of Ubers to go and sneak into the white. He, he wasn't that guy when he first got elected a couple districts north of me. So, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. You're right. Nunez sold his soul. I mean, and recently he just sold his soul. Again, yeah, by yeah. Leaving Congress. But they all know Trump is bad, but they, they've they all said to me privately, but the Democrats are worse, socialists are evil, blah, blah, blah. Um, what woke me up was Trump. Mm. Plain and simple. Like, if I engaged in ugly personal politics the last 10 years, uh, too often, every now and then, watching Trump get elected and then really paying attention to him after he got elected and understanding that every damn day, every time he opened his mouth, he was cruel, hateful, bigoted, ignorant, authoritarian, cultish, all the rest. It slapped me silly. The election of Trump woke me up and and began to get me out of the cult. Uh, I've said often, Corey, people ask me all the time, how the hell did you vote for him in 2016? Because I would criticize him back then. He blocked me on Twitter back in 2016. <laughs> but I my answer always is I didn't pay enough attention to him until he got elected. And then once I did, I said, oh, my God, have I even sounded a, like a hundredth of as bad as Trump is? It kind of cleaned me up and got me sober. Yeah. Yeah. There, by the way, there should be some kind of trophy for that. Like it's like a, a, an accomplishment if you've gotten blocked on Twitter by Trump. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Now, to be clear, you know, I see some of what's happening now. Uh, you mentioned Democrats. There are certain Democrats, you know, high profile Senator uh, Cinema, Senator Manchin. Yeah. And they are getting attacked by some folks, you know, as if there has to be some sort of purity test to have a D before your name and, or an R before your name. So to be clear, you still have what used to be considered conservative or, or, or libertarian positions on immigration, the Second Amendment and title reform. Am I right about that or? Corey, I am generally generally the same libertarian conservative that I was when I went to Congress 10 years ago. I'm proudly woke. I, uh, wokeness is a good thing. I, I've learned, I've opened my eyes on issues like climate and race relations, but generally I'm still a principled small government libertarian. I've just, I've completely changed my tone. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, I, I'd like to think that there's room for that. I will give you one example and one reason why I feel confident about if if Christy Smith does win the nomination again for this district, even though she and I disagree on about 75 percent of what she'd actually be voting on. Yeah. Uh, when she was in the state legislature, I, I met her at a, a community thing in the Central Park here in Santa Clarita. And uh, I introduced myself by saying, hi, Christy, I didn't vote for you twice. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, oh, that's that's OK. I mean, it's a democracy. That's how it goes. We, what were some of the things? And I for me, I'm a small business owner. So I told her a couple yeah. of the things that she supported that really wasn't in my best interest. And we talked about it for a bit. She gave me her reasoning. And but she went a step further when when she was uh, an assemblywoman here in California. She invited me to be part of her small business commun uh, committee. Uh -huh. And um, listen, to be fair, she didn't 
I didn't get to dictate everything that she was working for or um, language that she got into legislation, but I had some influence. I, I saw some of the language that I was fighting for, some of the compromise that, and, and my voice, it meant that my voice actually mattered, even though we disagree. And what I yes. also learned was that the process by which she arrives at her decisions on what, what to vote for has, has integrity, even if I do disagree with where she lands. So I would rather vote for somebody that I might vote differently 75% of the time that still believes in the process and democracy itself than, you know, these extremists who are just, you know, as it turns out, as you describe it, cultists. It has that, Corey, has that district changed at all with redistricting? Well, it, the, the, the ones, there are drafts. I don't think it's been finalized yet, okay. but I, it looks like they're going to um, include Simi Valley, which is very, uh, I don't know what the exact number is, but I, I think that part of California 25 is R plus three or plus five. That's why it was so close in the last election. Right. So if they if they include that as part of, say, uh, the Camarillo portion, it will yeah. turn from a D plus five to maybe a D plus seven or eight. Okay. okay. Yeah. But it's still it's still in draft phase. So we don't know exactly what it's going to look like. If that's right. the case, I think Christie has a pretty, pretty clear path. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, but it's still it's still, you know, essentially, especially this area, Santa Clarita Valley is still a very purple, yeah, purple district. So I do have <laughs> I was reading through Fox Silence it, and it's, you know, <laughs> only your voice could write a book like that as a as a, a former congressman, a former Republican, <laughs> but also someone who who, like we said, still has conservative and libertarian positions. So you do spell out a number of huge problems that ail us as a country. I, I was really intrigued. There's a whole set of chapters about how to fix some of these problems. Uh, and I'll just share, you know, if, if anybody in our, in our audience does get a chance to pick it up, it, it's definitely a fun and but also a productive read. So those chapters are fixing the presidency, fixing conservatism, fixing the debt, fixing trade, fixing immigration. So not that we can tackle all of those, but say, yeah. you know, the presidency or conservatism, can you spell out a little bit of what your prescriptions might be of how to fix so, uh, some of that stuff. Yeah, I think I think Corey. One thing that jumps out to me is, and this is a bipartisan problem. Our founders did not envision the presidency to be what it is today. Uh, our founders would be aghast if they saw how powerful the president of this country is. Congress, the legislative branch that I was part of that our founders believe should be paramount needs to reestablish itself mm. and reassert itself. And I, I worry that that might be too, it might be too late, um, but they've got to grab back a hell of a lot of the power that over the years they've ceded to the presidencies. I felt Obama had too much power when he was president. Trump took that and ran with it. A big part of that is Congress isn't pushing back. It's a big pet peeve of mine. Yeah, you do spell out a couple times in the book. I think it was it, I think it was Meadows or it might. Oh, no, it was Mulvaney who when it was when it was Obama and he, he yeah. said the thing about the, the phone and the pen, you know, he even said he it was he was prescient. You know, if, if it was a Republican, we'd have the opportunity to look like principled if we push back on it. He ends up being his chief of staff uh, for a short time and he, he didn't push back on it. He didn't take the opportunity to be principled about it. See, Corey, that's that's a great example. And that's what makes me so sad. Mick Mulvaney and I were best friends. Yeah. And Mick Mulvaney is a tough, 
smart, principled guy. I didn't recognize him at all when he worked for Trump. It just saddens me how those people changed who they were to try to fit in with this guy. It it saddens me. Yeah. Well, one of my other questions is whether you sound more bullish on the possibility of a robust third party. How, how realistic do you think that is? And how, how long will it take? How, how could that happen? Well, I think it's going to happen naturally. I had a- Andrew Yang on my podcast early, and he's already out there with another party. Ten years ago, I was talking about at town halls, give me a third, a fourth, a fifth party right now. This two-party thing is broken, period. So it's going to happen. The problem right now is we have this unique existential threat. One of our two major political parties has become an anti-democracy party. So whereas I wrote a piece, I think for the New York Times a year and a half ago, let's plant our flag and start a third party now. I'm of the opinion, Corey, now that that we all have to help the Democrats Uh, Because the Democrats are the only game in town to stop this fascist party. So I think it's coming. But I think right now our battle is against Trump and Trumpism. Yeah. One of your points, uh, not just about with the book, but also there is a a podcast that uh, called Fuck Silence. And and part of the point about it is is that it's, it's not just about the small number of people who voted for impeachment in the Republican caucus or uh, took votes who, who, who resisted to take those votes to overturn Arizona and Pennsylvania's Electoral College. It's about the ones who are silent, the 100 plus, 150 or so Republicans who are silent. Now, there are some who are freaking nuts, the Boberts and the MTGs, and there are some who are legitimately nuts. But what I wonder about that is I wonder if, say, a Nancy Mace is closer to uh, Congresswoman Spamberger than she is to an MTG, at least in terms of personal yeah. ethic and, and and political philosophy. I wonder if if Gottheimer is closer in, in philosophy to to Congressman Katko up in New York yeah. uh, than, than Katko would be to uh, what's his name, Gohmert or so, somebody like that. Yeah. You know, and again, it's. Maybe they voted because Kinzinger, like if you look at his actual voting record, uh, Congressman Kinzinger, like 90, 95 percent along with Trump yeah. during Trump's term. He, dude's a conservative. But at the end of the day, if we don't have democracy, if we're memory holding people literally storming the Capitol and hitting, you know, violent, violently attacking policemen and women, we don't have any we don't have a democracy. We can't take a vote on fiscal policy or far, foreign policy. Anyway, that's so. Corey, keep going, man. I mean, preach, preach, preach. I uh, I'm pretty good friends with Eric Swalwell. He and I yeah. talk regularly, and he's all, every time he talks to me, Corey, he says, "Joe, join the Democratic Party. Formally join us, you and Adam and Liz." And I I don't because I think I can keep helping Democrats by not being a Democrat. But Eric understands that this is one of those unique moments in American history where we all have to put our policy differences aside, lock arms and defend democracy. You know, what's funny is between the Democratic, uh, the DNC 
in August of 2020. And January 6th, I had a little mini evolution in my thinking. I was very encouraged to see Colin Powell and um, Meg Whitman and, and my former uh, go um, governor, Christine Todd Whitman, and several longstanding Republicans speak at the DNC. Yeah. And I was actually rooting for a a set what I what I thought of as a center holds election in, in November. I was encouraged because it looked like the Senate was going to stay in Republican hands. And even though uh, Democrats were going to lose some seats in Congress, they'd hold uh, the House. I was encouraged by that. But then, like the day after the election, when Trump started saying what he was saying about the election, and it's certainly by uh, January 6th, I was really glad. I was I was really relieved that it was you know, a Democrat across the board. And I never registered as a Republican, but as a as a conservative libertarian leaning independent, I didn't care. I didn't care if, about for now, I have to put my concerns about the debt aside because yeah. democracy is at stake. Agreed. And look, we, we don't get to pick when uh, the almighty puts us on this planet, but we're here now. We're in this country now. And our democracy is more threatened now than it's been, I think, again, since the Civil War. Yeah. And so I'm still a pretty hardcore Tea Party conservative, but I will probably spend the next two to four years homeless, but doing all I can to help Democrats win because that that fascist party over there needs to be defeated. Yeah, you know, and the difference, though, is that I think that within the Democratic caucus right now, even though there's some passionate debates about whether to pass the BBB with the, you know, uh, with the infrastructure bill, you know, all, all these debates that we've been hearing for the last few months, they're still at the table together. And even on some of the most difficult issues, you know, an AOC can still at the end of the day, maybe find some some common ground with uh, some of the folks toward the center of, of the party. Hey, Corey, man, that's, uh, that's the sign of a healthy political party, having real, uh, genuine, passionate fights and debates about policy. Yeah. That's going on in the Democratic Party. It's a good thing. Yeah. In the Republican Party, it, they don't even have a, you know, again, they don't have a platform. It's just all about supporting Trump. You either support him or you don't. And if you don't, you're not a viable Republican anymore. You know, I forgot to ask you about this, but I think part of the reason is, is that there isn't just a permission structure. There is such a hostile environment to be an independent voice. You've talked about uh, losing everything. You've also talked about, you know, getting dozens, hundreds, thousands of hate mail and even death threats. I was curious, first of all, obviously, you've lost a great deal, a national syndicated radio program, uh, the support of the Republican Party. Did losing everything go beyond that? And then I want to ask you a specific, some specific questions about the hate mail. It was the most difficult thing I've ever done, but the easiest thing. It was the most difficult thing because I knew, Corey, the minute I publicly came out against Trump, I knew I was going to lose my livelihood. I was going to lose my career. I was going to lose any future in the Republican Party. And I was going to lose any future in conservative media. I was going to lose friends, family members, and supporters. And I would get death threats 
every day for the next 10 years. So in one sense, I knew I was going to stare at all of that. And that's hard. But then, Corey, it was the easiest decision I ever made because I couldn't have lived with myself if, if I didn't just follow my head and follow my heart. Yeah. It makes me wonder, you know, aren't there still voices like Paul Ryan being on the board at Fox News? Isn't there some set of, of individuals with principle that could put their heads together and say, hey, guys, this is really crazy town, whether it's key figures at, at major media uh, giants like Fox News, key figures in politics, the key voices in culture and, and business that can get together and say, hey, can, can we create a permission structure for independent voices, still conservative, still libertarian, but independent voices? Or is there is the only road for that the truly independent media platforms like Dispatch and Bulwark and 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 White Flag with Joe Walsh. Yeah, I, I, Corey, I think it's too late. And by the way, screw Paul Ryan. I served with Paul Ryan. I used to respect the hell out of Paul Ryan. You you talk about the poster child for a an influential Republican who has kept his mouth shut these mm. five years. Who's Joe Walsh? I'm nobody. And I ran for president against Trump. Paul Ryan should have challenged Trump. Mitt Romney should have challenged Trump. Paul Ryan kept his mouth shut. Um, and there are so many like him. So, no, I, I think, Corey, it's too late because people like Ryan and the rest of them, they're waiting for Trump to blow over. If they have to wait another four years, they'll do it. Yeah. And then they know the, the establishment will accept a Paul Ryan again. They'll never accept somebody like me. So they're just, and Ryan's a young guy. A lot of them just believe, Corey, they can wait out Trump and even wait out Trumpism. Yeah. Yeah. And I would like to ask you too about the hate mail. You know, every once in a while, because we're called politics and religion, something or other, you know, we'll do a post and get, you know, uh, several comments, sometimes several hundred comments. And within those, there's some real hateful stuff. I, I haven't been, you know, threatened with death, thank goodness. Uh, but I can only imagine what that. But the funny thing is, is I, I have noticed that some of the most pointed hateful stuff never comes with an actual name on it. <laughs> you know, so I was wondering, if it, are these just keyboard warriors? Do they put their names to it? Or what's the nature of some of this hate mail? And what, uh, what might be some examples of it? It's probably all of the, the above with me. Again, from the beginning, and it was building because I, I was never a rah-rah Trump guy. And, and remember, Corey, again, unlike all the other never Trumpers, I come from the belly of the beast yeah. and I was in the belly of the beast preaching to these people. And I was kind of indifferent toward Trump. But the moment I said, Donald Trump is bad and he's got to be defeated, the threats began. And I'm sure there are plenty of them that are just, as you say, keyboard warriors. But there were plenty that were serious and you've got to report the serious ones. And it's, it's just, it's something you have to live with if you're a, a publicly outspoken conservative against Trump. Yeah. So you, you've had to refer some of these to. to Absolutely. Long. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Man, I, you know, it's, I, I would imagine if I was in that position, it, it would be challenging if it was just me, but you're also married. You have kids and, you know, uh, a wonderful wife. I, I would imagine it's even harder when you think about 
you know, your, your, your family. You know, you, you said something to start this show. I think you were talking about the founders and, and everything they went through to birth this thing. I've always been obsessed with the founding of this nation. There's a part of me, Corey, that has always believed in reincarnation. And I swear I was around during the revolution. But you think about what those men and women consciously did. I'm going to risk my life. I'm going to risk everything to start a new nation based on freedom. I, I would think that a lot over these last four or five years. And that would give me strength to, uh, to endure uh, a lot of what I've had to endure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've been inspired by the founders, if for no other reason, I got this whole uh, Alexander Hamilton I thing love going it. right now. I love it. <laughs> or, or you know, the the white. I'm white haired. Uh, you know, like uh, George Washington. But uh, when did you when did you turn white? When did oh, your hair really turn? I was starting to go gray in my early twenties. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. I, I mean. It's it's a gradual thing. So yeah, I, I remember going back back home. We live on the West Coast now and going back yeah. home and seeing one of my buddies that I grew up with, took my hat off after we got off the plane. He was like, dude, you were freaking gray. <laughs> Stuff like that. I, I was maybe in my mid 30s at that point. So wow, yeah, going on for a while. The Steve That's Martin cool. thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Love it. But we share the we share the platinum. So I, I respect. Yes. It. You know what it tells me when, when a guy who's relatively young like yourself is going gray, it tells me. You're you're the real deal. Like you, you you don't you don't need to cover the cover this up. You just you be you. You know. So I respect I, that. I, but full disclosure, Corey, I tried it. I think one time I tried just for men, whatever that is. Yeah. And I tried to dye my hair 10, 15 years ago. I got it all over my skin. My skin turned black. I said, no way am I going to do this. Well, I, so full disclosure, I tried that one time too. And it was my wife's prompting. And, you know, <laughs> I'm such a shallow guy in, in some sentences. I'm like, hey, would it get me uh, lucky a little bit more? Exactly. Often? You know, like she's like, yeah, baby. But no, I mean, so I was like, no, let it, let's just let it go. Let girl. it go. Yeah. So one of the <laughs> one of the cultural epidemics that hits close to home for you is cancel culture. Yeah. I heard you say in a recent interview that it really takes people from within a certain group to call out their own group, like leading Democrats to call out the excesses, you know, uh, of some of those who've gone too far. So I, I was curious. Um, I, I was recently embroiled in a, a very heated set of exchanges after Dave Chappelle's latest yeah. uh, comedy special. Now, I found I watched the whole thing. I found some of his some of the content to be really hard to sit through. I, I found it offensive, frankly, but I supported, I, I support free expression and I oppose those who are trying to deplatform him. Yeah. You know, I, I was curious. So I was curious if you followed that, you know, because of everything that you've gone through, what your thoughts about it are and where does that come like more broadly, just like, you know, you're, you're kind of an amateur student of, of sociology. Like where does that come from more broadly and, and how do we deal with it? I think, uh, Corey, that uh, we've become so easily offended. We've become so intolerant. And it's not just the left. It's not just the right. I'm a liberal and a conservative comes to speak on my college campus. I, I need to shut that speech down. Both sides do it. And I think the sad thing is I... Again, I, I generally, Corey, have always subscribed to 
the antiquated notion that sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. I am an unfettered free speech guy. Dave Chappelle's got a right to say whatever the heck he wants. Uh, you've got a right to go to his show or not go to his show or protest his show or criticize his show. That's all good. And that's the way I think a mature country handles words that offend us. But when you then try to go get somebody fired or you try to get a speech stopped, I, I think that's a step too far. And I think that's the sign of an immature country. And I'm, I'm worried because we've been in this place for a while. Yeah, that's a really interesting distinction where you, you draw the line somewhere around where you are impeding others' uh, basic freedoms. Uh, self-evident freedoms, if you will. That's that's interesting. I, yeah, I got, look, and Corey, you know this, and I got a right to offend you with speech. I, I, I'm always amazed, Corey, by the number of people, primarily on the left, who don't understand that hate speech is the very speech that the First Amendment protects. My right to say anything I want about you or me or Christians or Jews or atheists but but there are so many people in this country who believe that hate speech ought to be outlawed. That's scary. Yeah, you know, I saw a list of some of the cases that the AD, the Anti-Defamation League took up. And I think it would surprise some folks, some of those cases, because we often tend to associate the ADL with liberal causes. Yeah. But it's lib liberalism or li free speech. You know, and sometimes that exactly. free speech is, is from folks who we really passionately disagree with, but free speech is primary, right? Uh, if we don't have free speech, everything else is out the window. If we don't have- I will, I, 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 if I were with you right now, I'd kiss you on your forehead. <laughs> I will defend anybody's right to, to speak their mind and say their piece. And the only way you defeat speech that makes you uncomfortable is through other speech. Um, you express speech, you protest speech, but, but man, don't try to outlaw speech. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I'd be, uh, you might kiss me on a forehead, but if I didn't go in a different direction here, my brother would smack me on a forehead next time he sees me. <laughs> so I'm going to, there are two, um, there, there's a number of things that we probably disagree on policy wise, but there were two in particular, uh, that I came across that I think we diverge pretty far. And listen, I, I am not a policy wonk so much as I start with uh, philosophical or more specifically theological convictions. Good. And theologically, because of what I believe and, and what I've derived from scripture, which which is my uh, main basis for, yeah. you know, just studying stuff and transcendent wisdom and, and good and bad and all that stuff, guns and immigration. How did you arrive at your, first of all, articulate what your position, broadly speaking, is on guns and, and immigration? And two, how did you arrive at, at those convictions? Let me start with immigration, because you and I may actually agree on immigration. I don't believe anybody should come to America illegally. I believe America should open up her arms to anybody seeking asylum. That's a legal process. Uh, I am a I'm one of those former Republicans, Corey, who wants to open our arms to greater numbers of legal immigrants. 
because that's how we regenerate and make America better. So expand legal immigration, but man, you gotta have, and look, the wall is an overrated, overblown thing, but you gotta defend your border. Uh, are, are you and I far apart on immigration? Actually, maybe I didn't understand it. I actually, we're probably closer to it. So, you know, <laughs> Leviticus 19 is an interesting chapter because if, if you really want to take it close to uh, what it's um, what it's saying is you basically be an open border guy. Not that I'm an open border guy, yeah. but I think where I'm at is I want to make it a hell of a lot easier to come in, partly because of where I am fiscally. It's like we, we want to broaden the tax base. Let good folks in who who want to work and pay taxes and Amen. you know do their fair share. But it's so freaking hard for people to actually legally get in. Do you know, Corey? Do you know? Yeah, amen. And I'm with you. Make the process of becoming a legal immigrant easier. Right now, I think on average it averages about nine to ten years and costs about twenty seven thousand uh, dollars to to get into this country legally. That's ridiculous. So make that process easier. And I think we need to expand our legal immigration. Now, now on, on guns, you and I, let me tell you just where I'm coming from on guns. I will defend your First Amendment rights until I drop. I, I also am a firm believer in our Second Amendment rights as well. My, my God-given, my constitutional freedom uh, to defend myself and my family and my property, that's generally where my gun beliefs come. I think when it comes to guns, uh, we ought to focus on, and I think this is where there's compromise, focus on keeping guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them at the, at the start, instead of trying to outlaw certain guns or ban certain guns from legal gun owners. I think that's a non-starter. What's your take on guns? So again, I come from much more of a theoretical, theological perspective. You know, my reading of, in particular, the part of the story where Jesus enters in in the Gospels, Jesus's path to victory was through the cross. It wasn't through the spear, or the Roman army overtaking their own. His path, his, his path to victory is an upside down victory, as we would understand it. So that yeah. leads me to look to figures who used nonviolent resistance, you know, in recent history, uh, figures like, like Dr. King, yeah, Gandhi. But then again, there were other really heroic figures throughout our history, like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> you know, like he he really wished he could avoid a, a a civil war. But at the end of the day, sometimes you got to take up your gun. And, and and Corey, my 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 gun philosophy comes from this: as long as a gun, say a handgun, is a legal product that that law-abiding Americans can purchase then by golly, that 27-year-old African-American mom on Chicago's South Side who has to take two buses and walk two miles to get home from work through a crime-ridden, gang-infested neighborhood, she should have a right to carry that legal product to keep herself safe. And no one should tell me she shouldn't have that ability as long as it's, you know, she's properly trained. Yeah, I, th that's fair. See, I think that even though I come from a pretty far place theoretically than you do, I feel like there's there is a place at the table to have conversations because I know, look, look at the end of the day, you, there is a line somewhere like you you wouldn't say that, uh, 
you, you know, there should be private ownership of, of nuclear weapons that could destroy, your, you know, so there's a line somewhere. I don't know if it's AR-15 or, or before you actually get a nuclear bomb. But well, the, the, and it's, it's a good point, Corey. And, and pretty much the line that society has drawn, American society the last 100 years, is to outlaw machine guns, say. Fully automatic guns where all you do is put, you know, press that finger on the Twitter and rat tat 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 they go. Yeah. Um, that's that's the line. And I understand that there are good, well-intentioned people who would like to ban semi-automatic guns. Uh, I just don't think that's ever gonna gonna happen. Yeah, I think I think the way that one of the ways that we get there though is that can we agree on on what the real conversation is? You know, sometimes I'll <laughs> I was sitting across the table. I went to this uh, industry function and a guy had tattooed on, on his forearm. I think it was the Greek translation of come and take them. You know? <laughs> so he literally tattooed it on his arm and I'm like, Hey, Hey dude, a little secret here. Nobody's coming to take your freaking guns. <laughs> you know, we, we couldn't even agree on the, the preface to the conversation, let alone the conversation itself. So I felt like there's not really common ground there, but if we can agree on reality, then maybe we can sit down and talk about background checks or something like that, you know? Totally, uh, Corey, and that's the way to go. I had uh, on, on White Flag, I had Fred Gutenberg on a few weeks ago. He lost his daughter in the Florida school shooting back in 2018. And we sat down for an hour and he and I don't agree on damn near anything when it comes to guns, but we found a little common ground on, as you said, trying to do something, beefing up background checks. Yeah. Yeah. And I have heard you say that people who shouldn't, who, who've been deemed unfit, you know, whether it's a mental illness or, or if they've been charged with violent crimes, I think I've heard you correctly that folks who shouldn't have a gun shouldn't have a gun. Uh, That's I, where our focus should be is yeah. upfront doing whatever we can do to make sure guns are uh, guns stay out of those hands. Yeah. Yeah. It's not easy, though. Again, Corey, part of the problem is we live in an open, free society and there are bad, evil people in this society. And boy, it's it's awful hard to legislate away evil or regulate away evil. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I could do this all day. So I, I only have a couple questions left for you. The first of, of them is, do you have any questions for me? Yes, I have two concisely why why did you start why did you launch this podcast your podcast because i think more than any specific policy set of differences or any specific policy that we've been arguing about forever one of the greatest ills of our culture and our country is how we talk to each other and how Amen. we view each other and someone who might think I'm religious, who happens to be agnostic or atheist, all if all they know is I'm religious, it, it, it's been happening just recently. They make all these other assumptions about who I am. They have one, one piece of information, and then they get to generalize and demonize me based on that one piece of information. So I wanted to participate in a set of conversations because I know some people are doing it so much better than I am to such wider audiences than I am, including you. But I think the more that we have these sorts of conversations among people who have certain differences, I had Christy on the program, uh, who, who I hope is going to be our next congressman here. You know, the more we have these conversations and people that I disagree with religiously, with theologically, 
the more we have these conversations, we'll get into that exercise. And if there's just one person listening who changes, who adds one degree of nuance to one position, I think we've done some good work. But I think that is the most urgent, imperative work that we need to do as a culture. Perfectly put. Perfectly put. I have two more for you. Oh. Are you are you bearish or bullish on the future of this American experiment? It's not an either or question. Okay. I would put more of a percentage on it. I think it would not surprise. I don't think it's a majority possibility that within 10 years, we do not have a democracy as we know it. But I think it's more than a remote possibility. In fact, I would put it at least in double digits. Uh, if if not as oh, I'm a that? big dog guy, Corey. What kind of dog is that? So that's Charles. He's a mutt. He's a rescue. Yes, Charles Mingus the third, and then uh, we also have <laughs> we have Bailey who just got an operation. She's like the Franken dog right now. So oh my god, but she's doing great. She's yeah. Awesome. So awesome. yeah. So yeah. So I mean, there's a significant chance. I think it's at least in double digits, maybe as high as twenty five percent chance that we don't have democracy as we know it depending on who, who's, who's running Congress in 2022, depending on who's in the, in the White House in 2024. And even if those things go in a pro-democracy direction, I think there's still dangers that we have to work really, really hard to avoid. Okay, final question. You believe there is some form of existence after this existence? I do. Do you believe that when you pass and you leave this earth and you move on to that next existence, do you believe that you will be aware of the fact that you've moved on to a new existence? Or does that not make sense? It makes perfect sense. So I wrestle with that one, Corey. Well, again, I, I really do. At a certain point, I deferred to what I was deriving in scripture as my main source of how I'm forming yeah. my beliefs in big questions like these. Cause I wrestled for a long, I didn't become a Christian until I was 29 years old. So right. I wrestled with these existential questions for a long time before I started to at least go down a path. And as you well know, like every answer that you arrive at, it just opens up 12 more questions or 12,000 right. more questions. But this is the best I can say on that is that Scripture to me, the story of Jesus to me indicates that there's a very this worldly redemption project happening. When Jesus rose from the dead, his actual physical body rose from the dead. Yes. If you read Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, he's not talking about some otherworldly, you know, just purely unphysical. He's talking about this creation and the process right. of redeeming this creation. And part of the reason that I believe in that is because it makes what we're doing right now. It makes it, it makes it more important, frankly, because yeah. we're, we're, we're participating in that redemption project right now. Yeah. So, you know, your specific question, am I going to be aware of, you know, in that next chapter of whatever existence is, I think, yeah, I, because I think we're laying the groundwork now. It'll be very different, obviously. Interesting. But yeah, I do think there's cool. an element to that. Corey, thank you. That's interesting. I like that. Thank you yeah. for that. Yeah. So. How can we find you online? More information about White Flag with Joe Walsh and all the other cool stuff that you're doing. It's it just simple. For anybody who tweets, follow me at Walsh Freedom, at Walsh Freedom. Um, the new podcast is called White Flag with Joe Walsh. You go wherever you listen or, or listen to your podcast, White Flag with Joe Walsh. 
And some really great guests on there. Your conversation with Congressman Kinzinger was great. Uh, I haven't listened to the one with Jane Lynch yet, but uh, oh, really she's looking- a hoot, Corey. You'll like that. She's a hoot. Yeah, that'll be great. And uh, as always, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button. Leave us a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts. And most importantly, tell a friend about us. Now go talk politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.